0: Great. Right. Is that coming through okay? Brilliant. Well, real privilege to be with you uh, this afternoon, just. Uh, hopefully, you've all got uh, the kind of uh, invited booklets. Can you just wave those in the air just to show me the. End? Great. Fantastic. I'll explain those in a little bit. Um, if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 10. Luke 10. Uh, Mike asked me to speak on. Um, yeah this this sort of title of reaching and keeping 20s students younger people um and uh, the more i thought about it the more i realized this is absolutely just a huge huge topic um <laughs> and there is no way conceivably i can um attempt to you know fully cover this in the time but i guess um i guess we have to start with, uh, I guess, as much as we celebrate the positives, it's helpful to just sort of have something of a reality check when we think about where we are nationally. Um, so, basically, um, there's various ways in which we can, we can glean and work out how, how we're doing as a nation in terms, of, uh, in terms of this. One of the most helpful surveys I read by the Matthias Trust, who is a very kind of um, reputable... Christian charity who do extensive research, they did a very broad uh, cross-denominational uh, research campaign over several years, over thousands of churches, is that all right? and um, they published results about two years ago. Two of, the, two of the results really struck me, and they kind of live with me, which is, uh, number one, that in the last 20 years, there has been a 90% decline, statistically, in people aged between 15 and 25 going to church that's in 20 years in the UK now we we know that you know footnote you look at London you look at Hillsong you look at amazing places where God's doing things and of course we know that but a very sort of objective survey said that across the board when you look at all the denominations that we know of and the different movements in the last 20 years there's been a 90% decline in 15 to 25 year olds going to church which means now 59% of all churches of any different kind of tribe, 59% of them have not a single person aged 15 to 25. Now, even if those are a little bit overly gloomy, I think they're, they're broadly true. I've, I've got lots of friends in different, um, more historic denominations, and they're all saying the same thing which is in the next 10 or 20 years, if I could have some water, that'd be great. Next 10 or 20 years, unless something very significant happens, I I won't name denominations because it'll sound like I'm being negative and I'm not trying to be negative at all, but there is going to be a a very scary moment when all across the UK suddenly they realize for whatever reason, thanks very much, that there isn't a next generation coming. It's just not there. I think um, I think that's something that is is um, is generally very true. I think I think within new frontiers um, in the UK, particularly, I think there are pockets, lots of pockets, of exciting fruit that is real of um, of life with people in their twenties, uh, younger leaders, younger followers coming through. Um, but again, another survey done by a guy called Matt Hatchman, if you all know, an outstanding leader based in Leeds, and it wasn't as wide-ranging as the first one, but he was surprised to find that when he did the, the survey with the New Frontiers, the average age for the church, of church planters was 39. Um, I think it's not a criticism of 39-year-old people. I'm 36. But I think he was shocked because he was thinking, wow, that's, that's almost 40, and there's an absolute place here in my heart for maturity, I'm going to say that again and again and again, but I think, I think he thought it would be about 10, 20 years younger. People in their early 20s, actually stepping out and going for it. Um, I think I do think we are an aging movement generally, and I and I and I love people of every different, you know, age spectrum. I can't say that enough. Some of the biggest heroes in our church are a couple called Derek and Joan Reynolds. He's almost 80. He has more energy in his left finger, in his little finger, than most 25-year-old men. He's outstanding. He lives in in Starbucks discipling these men who are a mess, who have come to Christ, don't know their Bible, and I'm like, thank the Lord for Derek and Joan, because they're amazing. He looks like Father Christmas. He's like Father Christmas on steroids. You know, he's just... He's, he, he's so humble. He just... You know he never he's never harsh with me, even though I'm a blundering wally of a man who makes so many mistakes. So I can't say this enough, and can I say this with all honesty? In our and across the whole movement, I pray that in the next 10 or 20 years, God orchestrates the connecting of generations, so that there aren't I, there aren't churches where it's just ageing, and all this gold, and then there's other churches with all this kind of youth and absolute no idea what they're doing. We've got to find ways, amen, of bringing those together. I, we, we tend to be in that latter category in Canterbury, and I'm, con- well, I'm, I'm constantly saying to myself, I need to say it out loud. Um, one of the ways we're going to be growing, I think, with, with uh, the maturer generation, which we desperately need, is to be saying to the, the younger generation who are mainly there, please ask your mum and dad to move here. <laughs> when they come and visit, you know, puncture their tyres, do whatever you need to do so they do not leave, because we desperately need them. And it's said as a joke, but we desperately need it. I mean, the discipleship challenge is vast and massive. So, so I want you to hear, I am not, I'm really not, like young is good. I don't believe that, but we all agree that actually we have a phenomenal inheritance in New Frontiers that genuinely brings me to tears when I think of what Terry and Mike and, and ter- Terry's sons and have, have poured into us in terms of gospel, yes, spirit, yes, church, yes. There aren't many streams and movements which have that combination it's not a pride thing. It's, it's, it's a privilege thing, isn't it? And I think about some of the the God-given events or ministries that I'm, that we know of that are working into the younger generation. And I think some of them have got the mission thing. Praise God, but they don't have the church thing. And that kills me. And there's others that have the spirit thing, but they don't have the church or the gospel thing. And I think to myself, we have been given the crown jewels. Amen? It isn't this perfect doctrine that's all neat. And wow, oh, we But it is the sense of, my word, what we have as a movement, if we don't find urgent ways of getting that into the next generation. It's a fear of the Lord thing, I guess, what I'm saying. I fear him and I think, Lord, I don't want to be so busy with other things that we miss. Listen, we are called to be apostolic. I don't know what that really means. Do you know, is anyone, I'm often, Apostolic's a long way. I think I vaguely know what it means. If it means being fatherly and motherly, well, yeah, fatherly, kids, and apostles are guys. But you know what I mean? If they're it's about being fatherly, then fathers care about their kids, don't they? I have three girls. I adore jazz music. Jazz music is never on in my car, it's wheels on the bus. <laughs> I lay down my rights because of the younger generation. I want, I want them, not particularly to know wheels of the bus, but I want them to be happy. And I guess that's a picture of what we must intentionally do. And I know you're with me on that. You're here because you want that. I'm not going against the grain. We want to find God-given ways that we can, we can say, how do we, how do we make sure our preferences are, wherever possible, not the dominating thing, and our actual energies are on, you know, metaphorically putting wheels on the bus, I love Matt Chandler, an amazing guy from Texas who's seen amazing growth, particularly with younger people from pagan backgrounds. And he says, older people are not your enemies. They just need to get the vision. Older people who might be going, oh, it's too loud or whatever. Why aren't we doing the older? He says, sit them down and say to them, I need you. I need you. Can, you. can you help me pull your life into five men, five women? Help me. And guess what? They forget about the volume or they forget yeah that's secondary the key issue is being a disciple maker and that's that's what makes me very excited about what we're part of and the fact that you're having to listen to me rather than Mike and I wish I was listening to Mike I'd much rather listen to Mike right now that's Mike demonstrating what I'm I'm talking about in terms of giving away and actually saying we're constantly got to be looking for ways of you know (laughs) I mean, I felt God say to me, this time I was here, oh, two, two times ago in May, I was here, and God spoke to me and said, Tom, you've got to start giving everything away. And I, I, I'm 36, and I was 35 when God said that. And I thought, what? That's the sort of thing that you a prophecy you have, surely when you're an, an old man, and you're handing things over in your dotage, you know, there we go. I thought, no, no, right now. So I never host meetings now. I'm always coaching other guys. I only preach 50% of the time now always getting other guys to do it. In a million different ways, at age 35, I started saying, I've got to start to give this away. Because, to take the pressure off you, one of the most obvious reason why in Canterbury we have students and 20s is because we're reaping where we have not sown. We are in the privileged position of being in a university city with four universities. You'd have to be a complete wally not to in any way have some fruit. I am not strategic. I am not clever. I'm sorry if you're thinking, Tom's going to give us the solution. I'm very sorry. I haven't got it. And, and actually, you need to have a pressure release from thinking, you know, as Michael's talking about callings, that I know God's called me particularly in that place at this life stage to particularly connect with that, that generation who are just there. 35,000 students in a town of 50,000. You know what I mean? you are there everywhere. It doesn't require much missionary skill. It just requires a heartbeat. You know, I have a heartbeat, there we go, there's fruit. So I'm thinking, how do I... I don't want you going away thinking, I'm nothing like Tom, thank the Lord, and I'm in a very different place. I don't want to project onto you anything that's going to make you feel like, you know, Saul's armor, because we're different. We're called to different things, as Mike just said. Um, and actually, you know, I think it's in many ways... the. The reason that there's been a lot of success or whatever, or lots of younger people coming is because of those reasons, because of where we are. And actually, many of them come from your churches. You've poured your life into them, and they're these beautiful people. And I'm like, thank you very much. This is great. And, and actually, I honor you for that because the sending is, 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 is the hard thing, isn't it? Sending your sons and your daughters. Um, but but well done for doing that with, with courage and godliness. Um, and, uh, and I pray that many then do go back, actually, to where God's called them to. When I hear about Stamford, Adam's here somewhere, and I think about my hometown in Stamford, where I'm from, I'm, oh, I care deeply about Stamford and Lincolnshire, um, because it's where I'm from. So, so anyway, I want you to catch my heart on this, and my nervousness w- with sort of bombarding you with lots of sort of things to do um, w- would be that you feel, to be honest with you, just a bit overwhelmed in a way that's not helpful, Um, So what I uh, want to do... Is everyone going to the leadership conference in in about a month? Yeah. So in effect, I have three sessions because I'm doing a talk then and I've got this one and the short one after lunch. So really, I think Mike's request to talk about how we as churches reach and then keep students in 20s is kind of the three elements. There's the 20s element, okay? Understanding the 20s, doing a bit of basic sociology, okay? This book... I have nothing original to say. This book, please buy this book, or I won't say steal it because Andy will kill me, but take this book and then pay for it. This book, it is based in America, but it is basically a guide, a simple, outstanding, stunning observation of what's happened since the 60s with that generation and what he calls as we're vomiting up the consequences now in terms of the 20s whose parents were part of that generation. It's incredibly well observed and it, It's called, sorry, No Perfect People Allowed. No Perfect People Allowed. And it's a brilliant book. And there's lots of application for us in the UK. And I'm going to talk a little bit about about that at the leadership conference. So understanding 20s is the icing on the cake bit. Before that, I think the next step back is us as churches being on mission. So yes to 20s, but first of all, are we actually on mission? (laughs) Let alone to 20s, are we actually on mission? Now this is where this document that you've got is a summary of an entire terms preaching series that we've just finished. And in the next session, we're just going to have a a time where we break into groups and we look at eight non-pressure-inducing S's, steps, that I see in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, either hinted at or implicit, that mean that normal, busy, weak people like me and you can continue to step out into being effective missionaries when we say the word mission most of us go "Ah, i'm rubbish at this it's 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 not something i want i'm very good at and we did a series which basically broke down the kind of scary factor or the superman factor of being effective at communicating about jesus whether you're 100 or whether you're 25 that's totally irrelevant to this so we're going we're to touch upon that in the second section. But really, my, my appeal would be, if you're remotely interested, and it might help. And I, I do want to say, I believe this series at our church has probably been the most key thing for us in terms of taking pressure off people from, in terms of evangelism and exciting them. And I've had dozens of stories of very busy people who are suddenly finding, ah, oh, I can actually, through a smile or through eating with people, or through offering to pray with them, or offering to go through the scriptures with them, or whatever it might be, the different steps we see in Luke 10, I've suddenly found that the fields are absolutely, they're just ripe for harvest. So that's the kind of church-wide thing, but what I want to do before that, that fir- the first step, what I want to do really is, is look at you, the leader. Because I think that's where Jesus implicitly starts in Luke chapter 10. Because you can do all those invited steps. You can you can search your leaders, but this is the ultimate bottom line. If you as leaders are not doing your best, let's put it that way, you know what I mean, because most of us aren't evangelists. I'm a pastor, so I want to be someone who thinks about mission, but I don't naturally think about it. I naturally think about sheep. I love Christians. (laughs) I do. There's nothing that gets me more excited than taking a Christian from here and helping them to there. But I know I need to do the work of an evangelist. I love that he calls it work. It is tough. It is exhausting a lot of the time. And as an eldership, we have publicly repented to the church to say, and I've said, I'm really sorry that even though 15 years ago, I stumbled out of a bar at university, and actually Adam's wife, Susie, was wandering around, and I came out, look, you know, and, I, and I was an atheist, an aggressive atheist. I vaguely knew her, and I was like, oh, hi, hi, Susie. Have you been out having a few beers? And she went, no, I've been praying. <laughs> Confident, three words. That was her strategy. I've been praying. And I've said to the church, can you pretend at least to walk around and pray? And if someone says, what are you doing? Just say, I've been praying. I think God will forgive you if you haven't been, if he uses it like he did for me. Three words that went into my heart. I got all aggressive and defensive, but a seed was sown. I ended up finding out about this church that was part of something called MFI, I thought she said. (laughs) Wacky. Went along, holy holy, uh, spirit ambush. At that point, there was virtually no one in the church, in the studenty world, hardly anyone. It wasn't strategic. It was just full of... Wonderful people who love Jesus and they were welcoming to me. A crazy weird hippie who had crazy views about God. And I said to the church, I, I repent because I have not built that culture. Listen, I, I love relational evangelism and I, I try my best to give my life to those who don't know Christ. Relational, yes. The Bible is not just about relational evangelism. If it's just relational evangelism, my 10 friends who I'm endlessly pouring into, we are missing a huge part of the scripture which talks about spontaneous, What? uh, um, what's his name? Uh, James McDonald from America calls red apple evangelism. Apples that are just juicy red. Plop, there they are. I love that image. They're not green and they're trying to pull them off the tree. Please become a Christian. No, no, they just go, plop, there they are. And you probably didn't know them 10 seconds earlier, but at the bus stop or the woman at the school gate or her, whoever it is. That's how I became a Christian, humanly speaking, because of a red apple moment. It, I didn't really know her. I vaguely knew her. I didn't remember her name. But she was just wandering around. This, this is really what this Invited series is about. It's saying, genuinely, if we, if we focus not just on those people that we, we know and we're pouring our lives into, but every day when we're wandering around, when we're at the Premier Inn last night, the Ramada Inn, are we thinking today, tonight Lord, am I off or am I, if we give God that, I believe God wants to change us and I said that I'm sorry because we have mainly grown through students who have come and families who have come and Christians and I love Christians and they need to grow in the faith but we are not and I said, I've been in this movement 15 years and I said this to Wendy Virgo, as well, said I've been in this movement 15 years, and I adore your husband, and I adore Mike Betts. I think he's amazing, and I, do, I love you to bits, Mike. But I've never been personally challenged by a senior leader on how many people am I personally leading to Christ. That's not the topic of conversation historically, in my experience. And and I and I and and I and I thought I think if Paul were here, it would come up. Do you know what I mean? I might be wrong. I am no theologian, but I think he would probably be like, all right, Tommy, how's it going? And at some point, he would probably be like, let t- talk to me about how, you know, the actual mission's going. PJ Smythe breaks it down. He says, if you want to have a church that grows and is healthy, three things. Number one, a leader who is actually himself personally consistently drawing people into the church people who don't know Christ, and he is consistently drawing people into the church. Not talking about it, but doing it. Number two, then they need to be a leader who doesn't just do that, but then a leader who can spot other leaders, effectively raise them up so they then start to look after those people that he brought in. And then thirdly, they need to be able to cast vision for finances and resources and everything else that's needed to continue those first two steps. I thought, that's really, really helpful and really, really convicting. (laughs) Because if maybe it's just me, but of those three, I've got a long way to go with all of them. Now, right now, I know we're probably all feeling like, oh, goodness, I feel rather convicted. Good. I'm pleased. I love you, and I don't want you to try and pretend to be me or anyone else Because you might be in a different situation, a different life stage. But the bottom line is, we are all called to be those who are missionaries. Amen? Whether you're in a village, whether you're in a city, whether you're older, younger, whatever. That is the true north, as it were, in terms that we've got to work from. And what I love in this passage that Jesus sets the scene in Luke 10. He drops the bombshell. You've just seen in the first nine chapters, me doing some fairly impressive stuff. That's my little summary of the first nine chapters. And now, <laughs> you've got to do it. And you can't imagine the absolute terror in their hearts. The level of fear and sweaty brows, as Jesus explains the plan, which is, I'm actually going to go, and it's now to you. So that level of conviction and fear and cer- certain sense of, wow, that's beyond us, is a, is a biblical thing. What Jesus does, and this is my key, as well as giving the loving kick up the bottom that I'm giving to all of us, What Jesus does is this, and this is the key right at the beginning, is he doesn't bark orders about mission, you know, Matthew 28, Great Commission. He doesn't scream it like a drill sergeant. He knows we're wallys. He knows I am anyway. But what he does, he says, I want you to do this, but listen, there's got to be a core to your being foundation of being fathered into this. Look with me, I'll prove it. He says here in the first few verses, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord, I pray, help me in these few minutes we have in Jesus' name. I just want to look at three very simple but powerful things that Jesus does here. He lays this beautiful foundation for his terrified RM leaders moment. He, he says, it is a big deal what I'm saying. You're all feeling like you're failing. I said, okay, we all feel a bit, a bit rubbish. Some of you are brilliant at this. Great, you can pray for us afterwards. But most of us think, oh, I need to grow in this mission thing. And he lays this beautiful foundation of being fathered. And that foundation of them being fathered into this is key. If they carry an orphan spirit into what he's asking for them, they will feel driven. They will be guilt-driven. They'll have self-reliance. What I'm trying to say is they won't reproduce in the church a beautiful vision of mission. They will breed a driven vision of mission. There's three things that, being fathered into mission, three key things that occur, that mean three of the biggest challenges that hold us back are overcome. We move from fear into a place of strength. We move from a place of guilt into a place of joy. And we move from a place of self-reliance into sonship. Okay, let me just quickly lay these down. So it's like he's saying, before I get onto the Invited series, those eight practical things that you want to start doing, Before you do anything, you have to have a right mindset. I love what he says here. He, first of all, implicitly um, deals with the mindset of fear. He says here in verse three, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs. I just love that. I love Jesus is so different to politicians and to kind of, you know, sorry, nothing is politicians, but against worldly leadership, which basically pumps you up and goes, go on, Mike, you can do it. Believe in yourself. You can take on those atheists with your clever head and your brilliant arguments. You can do it. Jesus says, no, you can't. You're a lamb. I mean, I'm no farmer, but lambs are cute, but very unimpressive, right? I think lambs are familiar with fear. I, used, I did something, something called Duke of Edinburgh Award, where you wander around fields and do expeditions uh, in the Lake District. And I remember whenever we saw lambs, we used to just shout out, mint sauce! That's all it took for them to run. Just mint sauce. Jesus is saying, that is your identity as a Christian. I'm calling you to this huge thing. And actually, he's almost, I think he's got a sense of humor. He's saying, you're like little lambs at a human level. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand my, my, my intrinsic poverty of spirit. I can't convert a single another person. And there's a sense in, what, in which he's implying, get used to sort of having fear crouching at your door because that's going to be a part of your life. As was just been expressing this whole battle between the spirit and the flesh, he's saying there will be, if you're actually stepping out with God, there will be an element to which you feel like a little lamb a lot. You will feel a fear, a potential fear of rejection. Anyone here feel that when it comes to mission? The idea of the scowl or it goes from friendly to frosty with the woman at the school gates suddenly like oh you were friends but you're not anymore because you mentioned i'll go to church or whatever it might be or fear of failure and what jesus does is with that one word he just gets it out on the table there it is you're like little lambs but then what he does so brilliantly he then he then talks about something that we could easily miss that i believe is jesus's wonderful his actual antidote to being locked into fear He says this phrase here right at the beginning, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them on ahead. What's going on there? The picture here is clearly of him sending them out as heralds. You, You probably know that before kings went anywhere, they sent a herald. And Jesus is saying, you are going ahead of me to herald the way for the king. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because a herald was not very impressive. Just a herald, just a man or a woman with a big bell, saying, the king's coming. You wouldn't be particularly gripped with fear as, as a herald. You would, the focus is not on you when you're a herald. That you're not the hero, you're just a her- herald. You're just a bloke with a bell, or a woman with a bell, saying the focus of this gospel, mes- of this gospel message is actually on the father, the one coming, and on the future. I am here as an ambassador, not to have all the answers, but to actually be heralding that the pain in this community can be solved by a coming king. That the restorer, the healer, the changer, the redeemer, the one who sets people free from depression or from physical ailments, he's coming. And I'm here to tell you this good news. And that frees us when we put ourselves subtly in the place of, I've got to be the one with the answers. I'm almost the king. I'm the coming king. We tend to feel great fear. I've got to have all the answers. We're just wallies. We're just heralds with a, with a bell saying, hi there, um, in some small way, I just want to communicate to you something about someone else. And what that does is that punctures self-imposed fear. I love the fact that Jesus says, what is the great command? Love God and love your neighbor. He doesn't say, convert your neighbor. Now, he wants them to be converted, but that's not actually what he calls us to do, does he? He says, love them. Now, if I say, go out and love someone down the road, here's a million pounds, and I want you just to go and express as much love as you can, what emotion will you feel at that moment? Excitement, probably, for some of us anyway. A vague excitement, (laughs) heaven help us. You know, you'd think, Brilliant. I'm going to surprise this person because I'm going to come up and go, I just want to communicate something of the love of God and I have all this resource. Now, that kind of picture, not necessarily the money, although God does do supernatural things, is what he's saying. When, when, this, when this got into my head this summer, suddenly everything changed. I started wandering around my, my neighborhood, Tonford Lane in Gray's Way, where I lived, just thinking, I don't have to convert anyone. And the fear just drained away. I am called to simply wa- wander around as a herald mentally thinking I'm here as an ambassador for someone's coming and, and my job is simply to love them. It's to talk to that couple that I vaguely know and to say, what is their need? Oh, their need is they're about to move house. Well, can I say to you, our small group would absolutely love to help you. I haven't checked that with a small group, but I'll make them do it. <laughs> they are my resource. We will move your house for you. Really? You've only just met me. It's fine. We would love to do that for you. Or meeting Guz, who's been recently bereaved, a guy in his like, 80s, and no one wants to talk to him because everyone's in a hurry, as we heard earlier. And me just talking to him, saying, what, what needs do you have? Well, I'm trying to move the, the paving slabs, and they're really heavy. Do you know what? Our small group, we could could we come and help you? It's, he's thinking, this is weird. Or my other neighbor, a lady who lives around the corner, Sheila, who who I just connected with. And I'm thinking, just love her. Just love her. Just love her. Just love her. I'm not, I don't have to try and convert her. That's where the fear comes. I'm here just to bring some tiny, teeny taste. I'm a herald of the king who's gonna just wants to ambush her with love. So I'm thinking, hi there, Sheila. Um, I know you probably think I'm a bit strange. We just live right near each other. We've never really chatted. Um, is there anything I or the community I'm part of could do practically? She's a lady on her own. She's in her 70s. She'd, I always pay someone to do my garden, but I suppose if you're saying you could do it for free, I'm like, no problemo. My small group, they'll do that. (laughs) And she's just like, okay, fantastic. Now, I know some of you are like, Tom, this is, we've been doing this for ages. Brilliant. The key focus I want to just communicate more than even the practical thing is the shift comes from when I'm thinking I'm fathered into this. And the father is a God of love, who wants me to convey something of the coming, breaking in kingdom of love. I don't have to actually lead with, can I get this person on Alpha course? Can I twist this around somehow, vaguely, to be about Jesus? I am communicating my lead, my lead tip, as it were, my edge, is communicating the love of God practically or in some way. And all I'm saying is we are beginning to see an amazing fruit opening up. So... We move from fear to strength by understanding we're not the hero, we're the heralds. That's why the picture of them going on ahead of the real act, Jesus, is helpful. Secondarily, he then deals with a second massive thing that holds us as leaders back on mission, which is guilt. Um, Verse 2, he says, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Full stop. How do you feel after that sentence? God himself has looked you in the eye and said, there's so much need. It's just everywhere, but there's just not many willing people. (laughs) How would you? I mean, you'd probably think, yeah, you'd feel guilty, wouldn't you? I read that. And and if you stop at that, you just sort of feel a bit of pressure. It's almost Jesus is a little bit cheesed off with everyone. And And you can imagine him saying, and therefore, just get on with it. But he doesn't. Well, look what he does. He says, therefore, pray earnestly. Who? To the Lord of the harvest, the Father, the Lord, to send out laborers into whose harvest? His. That is just dynamite. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity on planet Earth. He's identified the need. Everyone's there waiting to hear from him. And it's like he's saying, it's not even enough for me to send you. You have to be sent in your soul and in your heart by the Father. He's like he's saying, actually, you need to be those that... You see, if we're not sent by the Father, we'll be sent by guilt. There are whole movements that are propelled and sustained by a drivenness and a guilt. And Jesus is almost like at that first full stop. If he stopped there, he could allow movements to be birthed that are actually basically like, the harvest is bendable, get out there, you lot. And we go, okay, sorry. I'll try my best. He doesn't. No, 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 no. Therefore, pray earnestly. There's a spiritual dynamic that not even that I'm going to send you, that the Lord, the Father who sent me would send you. He's saying, I have been sent because of my beautiful Father in heaven who's sending me. He's sending me and sending me. That's exactly the same for you. So in that sense, our mission is, is sent and ordained by the Father, the Lord of the harvest. And therefore, what happens is our the guilt thing of, I should do this, gets replaced by joy. I love the flavor of when they get back after this mission. At this point in the beginning, they're probably fairly, goodness, the stakes are high. We feel inferior. This is all a bit scary. But look at the end of the first um, time they've gone out, verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with what? Returned with? Joy. There's so much joy in this room. <laughs> they return with Joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said at the end of the 20th century, or whenever he died in the 1960s, wasn't it? He said in that century, his view, the number one reason that the world was no longer looking at the church was its lack of joy. That's why he wrote Spiritual Depression, 21 amazing chapters on saying, why has the church lost its joy? And one of the most obvious things is that often we're not on mission, For me, the the thing that most gives me joy now in my life is Friday mornings when I'm sitting in Nero's with my new friend, Christian, who ironically is not a Christian, (laughs) who is the deputy Starbucks manager that I've got to know. And now we go through something called Uncover. You may have heard of it. It's it's a bit like Alpha, but it's kind of like guerrilla warfare. Alpha's kind of like a course you do. I love it and we do it. But in addition to that, we want to uncover where the booklets that you basically do a seeker Bible study in coffee shops or whatever it is. And we're doing that with him. And and he's there. And he's this guy, 21 years old. God's all over this guy. And we, took, we, we sit there in Nero's. And he's, and the great thing about this is, is he's reading the Bible. He's learning to exegete scripture before he's even a Christian. He's reading. And he's, he's reading the, the, the questions about why the prostitute and the Pharisee were in that room and and, and, I, and, I, and you, he's getting this picture of Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, this just, it just brings joy to my soul. If everything else in church is a mess, at least Friday and mornings are happening in Costa. You know, and my deepest desire for every member of City Church is that they have their equivalent. Because it just selfishly gives you joy. And therefore, actually, you start to radiate something of that missionary joy that happens When churches are one by one by one by one doing their equivalents, And that's why you see the New Testament bursting with these crazy descriptions that are somewhat different often to our churches of indescribable joy, unspeakable joy. Paul was in prison and he was laughing his head off and making the jailers annoyed because he was singing in the middle of the night. You just think this guy's a lunatic. Actually, he was someone who just understood that mission and joy are so intimate. So often I'll say to guys... You're, you're, you're a bit depressed and you don't need to pray anymore and you don't need to learn any more scripture and you don't need to go to a small group anymore. Well, I want you to do those things, but you just need to be on mission. You need to somehow find an unbeliever who is a man or woman of peace, which is what he talks about here. Don't focus on those who, are, who hate you necessarily. Look for men and women of peace who are actually vaguely open and interested and just pour your energies into them. Love everyone, but invest evangelistically in those who are men and women of peace. That's what the Bible says. Don't throw pearls before swine. Give yourself to those who are God is working on. Like this guy Christian. And we're sitting there, and, and we're just in the coffee shop several weeks in. And he's now I've got him to church. Well, he's coming to church. I can't stop him. And his girlfriend. And his mum wants to come. We're going. To put, I interviewed him in the middle of a sermon. He's like, I'm not a Christian yet, but I'm in this for the long haul. And he's like, he's great. Same with his girlfriend. And then... We're in, the, in Nero's a few weeks ago. And suddenly there's this, this lady comes over who works in Nero's. And she says, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've been just watching you two guys. Are you Christians? Because we've got our Bibles out. You know, I'm like, well, I am, but he's not. He's almost a Christian. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, this is amazing. That, that Uncover thing. Someone gave that to me in Belgium two years ago. Can I, can I come to your church? And I'm just saying, all we're doing is sitting in a, in a coffee shop with the Bible. I am like... So not an evangelist, but I'm trying my best. Like Mike is, you know, we're trying to step out. And to, how do we, in our own ways, in our own contexts, start to do the things? And then so she's going to be coming now just as she's been coming through Christian who's not even saved yet. And so it's, it's the joy that comes. And you move from this thing I should do. What Jesus does in this passage, he nails the wrong theology we have, which when he says love the world, it doesn't mean the world is lovable. Often we feel guilt if we feel a wrong sense of over-responsibility for everyone out there, that they're just so lovely and they're victims and I've got to somehow serve them. Now, of course, people have tough lives. Don't mishear me. But the Bible does say, and Jesus says here, he calls them wolves. He says, you're sent out amongst wolves. What he's saying is people are responsible for their choosing to rebel against God. Don't feel guilty for their choice. He's saying have an internal boundary. Don't just be crippled by guilt. And I feel, I feel grief when I think about people not going to heaven. But I'm not actually anymore quite as crippled with guilt that it's somehow my fault. The Bible says God loves them. We're to love them. But don't be naive. Actually look for men and women of peace. Because if you're investing in that vulnerable way with just everyone driven secretly by guilt, and that you're going to somehow rescue them, you will die. And Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He's saying, if the works I'd done there, I'd done there, they would have repented. It's your responsibility. And although I wouldn't say that in quite the manner, you know, on a Sunday morning, because the place has got lots of non-Christians, there is a freedom that actually comes as Christians to say, God, I don't want anyone to go to judgment without Jesus but I'm not actually going to live with a wrong guilt that I'm failing it is their choice and the other thing that this talks about actually is that they are responsible and God is responsible God's ways are not how I would do it Jesus says I've completed the works that the father gave me to do and I'm not going to feel guilty about works that he hasn't called me to do Jesus could have cured world hunger when the devil said make these stones become bread he could have done that couldn't he he chose not to and i don't know why but that is that is that's god that's not i can't impose my little brain on that jesus could have zapped everyone and made everyone believe but he said actually i'm choosing to do what my fathers choosing so this double understanding is huge we go we live in guilt if we think we are responsible for everyone because they're all lovely people and if i just explained it better they'd all believe they are rebels who hate God, is what the Bible says. We love them, but that is actually their identity. But also, if we somehow think God's ways are just not quite right, that's actually t- that, that will lead to a very destructive heart condition and joy won't be there. We, we partner with the Father like Jesus did. And we're saying, Lord, I can't make anything happen. I'm looking for sons and and, and women of peace. And when you bring them into my path, I will do my best in some way through a smile or through some connection to convey something of the love of God. And if you open that up, brilliant. But it's got to be you. Now that's joyful. Mission where you are identifying men and women of peace and you're investing in them. That is wonderful. You love everyone. Amen. You love even the most annoying people. But the, the Bible does say Men and women of peace, the ones you pour your hearts into, and they're often very messy. It's not easy doing that, but they are open. That is, I believe, where joy in mission comes. I'm fathered. You see, that fatherhood thing is key. If I'm an orphan making this happen, then actually you're driven by guilt and actually your own glory, and that's a killer. The third thing, the third foundation, with this I'll finish, is this. Jesus also recognizes the danger of what we could say is self-reliance. Fear. Is dealt with guilt is fear, is dealt with self reliance. He makes it very clear in verse four: carry no money bag, knapsack, sandals, or whatever. He's basically, I think, trying to make them understand, in a physical way, you need to physically understand what actually, spiritually speaking, you are already. You feel what does that make you feel? It makes you feel very vulnerable, walking walking around with what sounds like almost no clothes on. I mean, obviously they have some, but you know, with nothing to make you feel ready. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you're lambs, you're also those who are very dependent on me when it comes to every single thing I want to give to you. Self-reliance is an absolute killer in every realm of life, but absolutely when it comes to mission. And it's like Jesus wants them to understand that That they are, just as they would have been almost physically reminded, wow, I'm really reliant here because I've got nothing to rely on apart from him. He said, yeah, I want you to almost make friends with that feeling. Make friends with that feeling of vulnerability. If you're secretly dipping into self-reliance, it will kill you. And you'll breed a wrong thing in our churches. And so he transitions them from, from that into sonship. Jesus was profoundly dependent on the Father, wasn't he? For everything he did. And he wants to ignite in us. A, a, listen, and I prophesied over the church. And I, felt the, I said, listen, I prophesy over you, City Church, that there's going to be more spiritual highs with you out there at a bus stop than even on Sunday mornings. Because mission is an intensely spiritual activity. It's intensely spiritual. This is not more spiritual than us walking around in twos or on our own or whatever, listening to the heart of the Father, going, "Lord, is that is that a man of peace? Are you opening up there? Oh, okay. When we realise it's about profound dependence, prayer, and pr- the prophetic, and listening to the Father, it's all bundled in together, isn't it? And it gives this amazing vision. That we're not building to the gathered Sunday only, but every moment of every day is this intense vertical-horizontal, vertical-horizontal dance that we're in with the Father. We're listening. I think. I think he's saying over there, and it's this image. He's he's saying, he says, "You're labourers in a harvest. You're not the Lord of the harvest." Oh, I love that. You see, we can sometimes, and you know, I go. Jesus said the Lord you know that there's there's a real harvest out there. So I'm going to get stuck in. Great. Here we go. And you have Christians like that, don't you, who are just robotic in no matter who they meet in a really almost aggressive way telling people about Jesus. And I think Jesus I think honestly I think he loves the fact that they're kind of zealous in a way. But imagine the image you've got this amazing harvest field. It's beautiful. It's just perfect. Thousands of ears of corn. And there's the Lord, the perfect farmer. And he's got his army. Okay, listen up, everyone. Do not touch a single bit of this precious grain. They're all different. You're in different parts of the field. The wind direction is different in different places. Don't touch. Hey, you put that down. That's a dangerous sigh. Don't you start wielding that, you wally. I haven't told you how to do this. And I think sometimes if we can just get into doing this, can't we? Man-generated, self-reliant, logic-based things rather than listening to the Lord. What's he saying? Oh, okay. So we get here. Okay, and there we go. We want a program. We want a formula. And Jesus says, if you're laborers and I'm the Lord, that implies an ongoing, wonderful relationship. Just as Jesus learned in his human form the skill of carpentry from Joseph, it's like he's almost drawing yeah, and you're now learning the skill. It's going to take you a long time listening to me in the situations you're in, listening to the Lord. You're all different. Don't start going into autopilot, self reliance. I know what I'm doing, thank you very much, Mr. Lord. I'm alright in this bit of the field. No, 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 listen, listen, listen. And as we do that, we go from self reliance into wonderful sonship. And we recognise that God's placed us in these different parts of the harvest field. And he'll give us different instructions. And it all depends on listening to our father. Listening to our father. A father who is passionate about things wants his children to be passionate about the things he's passionate about. I do wonder sometimes, when I meet the Lord i really I, I really want him to th- I really want him to say, Tom, even though naturally you loved Christians because you were a shepherd, you really caught something of my heart for, the, for for what it was to labor and to model that, and I do sometimes wonder how our great missionary father looks at us sometimes and thinks i lo- i 'm never going to stop loving them, but I wonder if they've caught my heart on this are they actually passionate about the things I'm passionate about. Uh, Josie's my wife's dad, who I love to bits. Um, he's really into birds. I'm not at all into birds by nature at all. He is so enthusiastic, and he's such a kind of salesman. He'll say, oh, it'll, be, it'll be in my going, Tom, Tom, come over here. Like, what is it? What is it, Pete? I'm like, Look at that. I'm like, what is it? I can't see anything. Over there. That, Tom, is a diddle diddle diddle. Diddle diddle diddle. And it's never seen at this time of year. Wow, that is kind of cool. What was that again? Oh, it's gone. Oh, look over there. And Pete is, bit by bit, I'm catching his heart for something I didn't care about. And he's an amazing father. And I feel God, he's saying, this is a, this is a long-term thing, isn't it? It's seeds going in. And this, this, all I've tried to do is put in part the heart for us as leaders. Because the thing that we as an eldership, and anyone coming into eldership, there are certain sort of strengths, as it were. Mark Driscoll said to us as a movement, didn't he? He said, you have the value of mission. Do you remember that a few years ago? You have the value. It's beautiful. But I think God wants to help you with the practice, the actual outworking of it. And I think he's right. I know it in our church anyway, certainly. By the grace of God, there have been lots of people coming to, well, some people coming to Christ. But I think it's more in spite of us as leaders than because of us. And it is beginning to change. So maybe we could just stand to our feet. Time is zoomed away. Uh, Maybe I could just pray for us and then we'll have some lunch. Father, we want to just say thank you so much that you have prepared works as carefully as you did for your son. I mean, that's amazing. Lord, in North Norfolk, in Suffolk, in Kent, in Essex, Lord, all over the places we work. We, even now, we just say, Lord, we, we choose to lay down the cynical, self-reliant head we can inherit and we, we pick up the vulnerable childlike mindset of a, of a son or a daughter who doesn't know how to do this harvest thing, who, who, who isn't naturally always that bothered about it. We want to ask that you will give us both hearts that are deeply changed and hands that are really skilled. Hearts that are deeply changed and hands that are really skilled. I pray That when we meet again, we'll find stories bubbling up of personal things changing in our lives. Thank you, Lord God, that this is something, Lord, you've spoken so clearly to Mike and the team about. Thank you, Lord, that this is something we recognize you're you're trying to emphasize. Not losing the other key elements, but in a non-driven way. Locally, nationally. We don't want to start lots of churches that aren't on mission. We want to see churches that are on mission here, then reproduced all over the world, which know how to get into their cultures. Lord, thank you. You have it all in hand. We look to the Lord and we recognize, Lord, we are not the heroes. We're just heralds wanting to listen to you and to do what your son did. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay.